Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Nashville, Tennessee to discuss protocolized post-extubation respiratory support to prevent reintubation. My name is John Casey. I am a pulmonary and critical care physician at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, uh, John. Today we'll be discussing your article that uh, appeared in the Blue Journal. It was entitled, Protocolized Post-Extubation Respiratory Support to Prevent Reintubation, a Randomized Clinical Trial. So maybe you could uh, answer a rather obvious question. Why is it so important for us to prevent patients from being reintubated uh, in the ICU? So that's a great question. Uh, so, so uh, mechanical ventilation is one of the most common things we do in the ICU and really one of the hallmarks of medical ICUs. And despite uh, protocols to uh, manage sedation and get patients through spontaneous breathing trials and demonstrate that they appear safe for extubation, despite all of those measures, still about one in seven patients under, uh, re- requires reintubation. And patients who, who require reintubation generally do poorly. They have much higher rates of mortality, higher rates of nosocomial pneumonia. So anything that could prevent reintubation uh, appears to help patients' uh, uh, outcomes. So we know that uh, if you do have reintubation, you have worse outcomes. Maybe you could just give us an overview of what would you consider you know, standard practice or good practice when extubating a patient to ensure that they don't require reintubation? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's uh, it's a, a whole other area of research uh, for which there's uh, some amount of variability between institutions. Everyone agrees that uh, daily spontaneous awakening and breathing trials uh, to get patients off sedation, minimize sedation and delirium, and test daily their readiness to, to uh, for extubation really helps patients get off the ventilator earlier and improves outcomes. In addition to that, there's, there are ongoing questions about how best you assess readiness for extubation. Uh, and there's some really uh, important recent trials that have shown uh, that a spontaneous breathing trial of 30 minutes uh, using pressure support with 5 over 5 uh, appears to be sufficient. So that's the, the common practice at our center. Uh, and there are certainly other centers that, that uh, use other metrics and things like, historically, things like force vital capacity or rapid shallow breathing index have been used frequently. Uh, but I think we're finding that uh, that as we liberalize our criteria, and get patients off the ventilator earlier, uh, we have generally improved outcomes. Really, anything that shortens the amount of time someone's exposed to mechanical ventilation, either during their initial run or by preventing reintubation, all of those trials have been associated with improving patient outcomes. So let's focus on your study now. So you decided to institute a protocolized protocolized post-extubation respiratory support and perform a randomized trial to assess its effectiveness. What was the motivation or rationale for choosing that intervention? Well, this, this trial really builds on several recent important trials. And for a number of years now, it's been recognized that patients are uh, often weak and maybe hypercapnic at the time of extubation. And there were a number of trials um, by uh, uh, a researcher named Ferrer that looked at uh, post-extubation uh, non-invasive ventilation. So instead of waiting until patient uh, you extubate a patient and they get in trouble and then applying a rescue therapy, which had been previously shown to be ineffective or maybe harmful, the idea came about that if we provide these therapies prophylactically to a patient who appears well at the time of extubation, we might be able to prevent trouble. And there was a pretty rich body of literature that providing non-invasive ventilation to people who were hypercapnic 
prevented reintubation and decreased mortality. And then more recently, there have been trials looking at high-flow nasal cannula. So for people who are high-risk but not hypercapnic, high-flow nasal cannula appeared to be as good. And then uh, the trial that led up to the proper trial was a trial uh, that was published in JAMA by uh, Hernandez, and that showed that high-flow nasal cannula was better than standard conventional oxygen for people who were low-risk. If you add up all three of those groups, high-risk hypercapnic patients, high-risk non-hypercapnic patients, and low-risk patients, that's everybody. So when, when those trials were published, our group really had a robust discussion, should we prov- be providing something to everybody? And because that had never been studied itself as an approach, and it was unclear if these three trials really let, really added up to everybody or were these three small subpopulations that existed within our full ICU population, uh, we decided that we should study that. And I think the concerns for why those results may not be generalizable, I think, uh, can't come from their uh, reintubation rates in the control arms. So overall, large uh, observational studies have reported that reintubation rates across the nation and, and in our ICU are somewhere in the range of 12 to 14 percent. And the control arms in, in those studies that had looked at prophylactic post-extubation support reported reintubation rates that were much higher, which makes you wonder if they were selecting patients who were like, more likely to benefit and whether or not it was really true that everyone would benefit from something. So our ICU is, uh, and Vanderbilt more generally, has what we call a learning healthcare system. Uh, and the idea being that when you have questions like this, rather than just implement a, a protocol when you don't know if it's going to be safe or effective, you should roll it out as part of a study and evaluate its, its performance. So that was the real rationale for, for determining an RICU instead of just applying one of these therapies to everybody, why don't we apply it to a random half and see if they benefit? That's a really good explanation of the rationale. So let's dive into your study methods. Uh, Which specific interventions did you use and how did you decide to use them in the intervention arm? Yeah, I think that's a really important point for this study. Uh, And uh, I think understanding the results really require understanding exactly what we did. So our intervention was based on uh, those recent trials I mentioned. So the data was really most robust for those who were hypercapnic, and all the studies had focused on non-invasive ventilation. And not only did those studies suggest a decreased reintubation, they suggested a mortality benefit. So our protocol said that anyone who was hypercapnic, either chronically or on their spontaneous breathing trial, uh, or patients who were intubated for a COPD exacerbation, those were the the groups that had been studied in previous trials and found a benefit from non-invasive ventilation. So patients who fit into one of those three categories hypercapnia uh, chronically or acutely during their spontaneous breathing trial, or patients who were intubated for a COPD exacerbation would receive non-invasive ventilation. And basically, everybody else, high-risk patients who weren't hypercapnic and low-risk patients, could receive high-flow nasal cannula. And we also specified that if patients were unable to tolerate non-invasive ventilation or refused it or had a contraindication, like a facial fracture or several other contraindications, that those patients should still get something. The idea is they get some kind of post-extubation support. So if you had an indication for non-invasive ventilation, but it was contraindicated or the uh, patients were unable to tolerate it, then they would be transitioned to high-flow nasal cannula. And then in terms of your exclusion criteria and inclusion criteria, maybe you could just go through those, and then we'll dive into your findings. Yeah, so the, the point of this study was really to to, to determine if these therapies would work for all patients undergoing extubation. So as a so-called pragmatic trial, we really tried to minimize the amount of uh, exclusion criteria to patients who, uh, for whom it would be um, uh, unsafe or unreasonable to apply this therapy. 
And uh, the main ways we operationalized that were patients who had already been reintubated, so they had already met the outcome, uh, patients who had been intubated less than 12 hours, so for whom their risk of reintubation was so low it was very unlikely that they would benefit from these therapies, or patients uh, who had pre-existing goals of care prior to extubation uh, that suggested they would not want reintubation, so patients who were so-called uh, DNI. Other than that, every patient was included in the study. And then in terms of your control, um, what we found across the United States is that there's a lot of variability in practice. So at Vanderbilt, what is considered your usual care, um, and what did your control arm receive? Yeah, that's another really important question. Our control arm was not uh, conventional oxygen. Uh, we didn't mandate uh, what type of support patients receive in the usual care arm. In, in our uh, ICU prior to the study and during the study, if uh, without the, the protocol, the mass majority of patients did not receive support. So uh, 84% of patients in the study in the usual care arm did not receive support. But we allowed providers to, to identify patients they felt uh, would benefit and they could provide whichever therapy they thought was appropriate to those patients. Uh, as it turned out, what happened is that uh, few patients got support, but the patients who got support generally got non-invasive ventilation. So in the end, the difference uh, in this trial was largely driven by that difference in high-flow nasal cannula which was applied to the, to the majority of patients in the intervention arm and almost no patients in the usual care arm. Gotcha. So let's dive into these key findings of yours. So what were your major findings and how did you interpret them? Well, the major finding, uh, the primary outcome of the study was reintubation within 96 hours. And we found that there was no significant difference between the protocolized support group and the usual care group. Uh, that was disappointing. We really hoped this would be an intervention that would help patients and prevent reintubation. I think the important takeaway is that this uh, shows that there are likely patients who would, who do not benefit from uh, protocolized support and that applying it to all patients does not improve outcomes. It doesn't prove that uh, that, there, that, uh, that no patients benefit. So as mentioned, uh, some fraction of patients in the usual care arm uh, did receive these support. And I, I think the uh, question, next questions will be, well, uh, were those the right patients, or how do you identify which patients will benefit? So let's answer that question. <laughs> so based on your findings, you know, it, it, it sounds as though a physician or care-driven um, uh, care is better than a protocolized uh, approach. How would you identify those patients to ensure that they got the optimal care? Yeah, so I think there are a number of remaining questions in this space. Um, so uh, one question is uh, the importance of screening for hypercapnia. So as we mentioned in the paper, that's not routine practice in our center. Uh, if you have a high suspicion, we, we might get a, a blood gas on a spontaneous breathing trial, but we don't routinely do that. And, uh, and uh, some studies have, but I'm not aware, aware of a study that has directly compared whether or not getting spontaneous uh, whether or not getting blood gases on spontaneous breathing trials routinely uh, and that would thereby identify more hypercapnic patients who might benefit. I think there are other uh, criteria that we uh, need to assess and determine if they identify patients who would benefit. I think some of those things uh, might include things that we didn't measure routinely in the study, things like cough strength or uh, volume of sputum production. Perhaps those things uh, would help us identify patients uh, who are at higher risk, and more importantly, patients who would benefit from these therapies. Because uh, I think that's really the key question, is not just identifying who's at risk of reintubation, but identifying patients whose risk of reintubation will be decreased by uh, high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation. So this study does, uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, 
pulls into play, you know, the, the question of routine uh, or protocolized use of uh, high flow. Um, a lot of folks have felt that, you know, high flow is going to be the panacea for all things related to uh, the airway. And, and we've definitely found that in the COVID era that a lot of patients who have been put on uh, high flow, they may have initially benefited, but uh, that actually resulted in adverse outcomes, whether or not it related in, uh, to chronic fibrosis or uh, untreated um, ARDS. What is your the thoughts on high flow, when should it be used, and when would you pull back and say, you know what, it's time to intubate this patient, or it's time to think of a different therapy? Yeah, I think that's another really important and tough question. So I think certainly uh, our trial doesn't do anything to answer uh, questions about patients in acute respiratory failure prior to their first intubation uh, or post-extubation. That's not the way we used it in the study. But I think there are really important questions uh, along those lines. So uh, the uh, relative benefit of, of conventional oxygen versus high-flow nasal cannula versus non-invasive ventilation, I'm not sure that that has been definitively answered by studies like the Florali trial and certainly has not been addressed even in COVID-19. Uh, I think those same questions apply in the post-extubation setting. So in non-invasive ventilation, we found that uh, extubating patients and waiting until they get in trouble uh, wasn't beneficial and maybe harmful. Is the same true for high flow nasal cannula? No one's ever tested that. Uh, so this trial, uh, to me, decreased my enthusiasm for using high flow nasal cannula broadly, since that was the main uh, intervention that was different between the two groups and there was no benefit. Our trial doesn't do a lot to inform the use of non-invasive ventilation, uh, as those as that was uh, uncommon and similar between groups. Um, but I, I think that you're asking important questions, and I uh, I think the right way to figure that out is a, is future randomized trials. I think it's certainly possible that uh, that there may be a, uh, a point at which uh, intubating a patient and preventing further physiologic derangements or work of breathing or injurious tidal volumes could be important. Uh, but every trial we've had thus far shows that anything you can do to shorten the duration of mechanical ventilation improves outcomes. So I, I think there, are, there, this is a real question of clinical equipoise that I think needs a, a future clinical trial. Yeah, I think the the point that you make about uh, having a question and going out and answering it in a scientific manner is really important, and I applaud you and your team for doing that. Maybe you could comment on de-resuscitation. This has been a big issue um, over the last few years, especially with the volume of fluids we gave patients prior, um, and making sure that patients are ready for extubation. Um, what is the role of de-resuscitation in patients um, who have been extubated or undergoing extubation? And were you able to factor that in uh, your trial? Yeah, so the, there is uh, a rich literature, literature for fluid management and its interaction with mechanical ventilation, and the FACT trial really being the best example that, that uh, diuresing aggressively will shorten the duration of mechanical ventilation. And I think it's an important thing that should be in your mental checklist before you extubate a patient, uh, that, it, that the, the application of positive pressure decreases preload and uh, it provides some physiologic benefit for patients who are volume overloaded. So I think that should certainly be in something that you're considering every day for a mechanically ventilated patient and maybe a reason that you delay extubation for someone who otherwise seems to meet your metrics for safety. In the proper trial, that's not something that we tracked carefully. So uh, we did not track fluid balances. The, re the intervention didn't include any diuretics or fluid management that was left to the discretion of the clinical teams. But I can say personally that I, I agree that's a very important thing uh, to be considering. And I think there's already a pretty rich literature showing that uh, diuresis uh, helps get patients off the ventilator earlier. I think you're asking a really important question about fluid management approach and how that interacts with 
uh, on the front end of the resuscitation and how that interacts with outcomes. And there are really important ongoing trials addressing that, particularly the CLOVERS trial by the Pell Network uh, really is trying to address this question directly. Should we be using fluid as aggressively as we historically have, or is a, a presser-first uh, approach better for blood pressure management with more conservative fluid management? I think uh, that that's an unanswered question. I think there's it's very clear in this uh, stable or, or de-escalation phase of illness that diuresis is beneficial. I think that we're still figuring out in the resuscitation phase what is the best approach for patients as it pertains to fluids or vasopressors. Yeah. And this is, you mentioned the limitation of uh, not having any fluid data in, in your study. What other limitations do you think uh, are important that the um, reader or uh, listener know about when interpreting your study? Yeah, so I think the most important thing is I want people to understand that the, that this was protocolized support compared to usual care, and it, and it definitely does not show that, that uh, there are no patients who would benefit from these therapies. Uh, it does show that applying them to all patients doesn't help. I think the other possible, possible interpretations of this study, which uh, are, could be viewed as limitations, are, that we, are the way that we applied the protocol. So our, our goal was to simulate the way that these protocols would be applied in, uh, in standard practice. And I think if you take a patient who you perceive as low risk of reintubation, who, who has a median duration of ventilation of three days, which is what we saw in this trial, and you expect that patient will hopefully go to the floor the next day, you're unlikely to mandate that they have 48 hours of a uh, advanced respiratory support device that would prolong their ICU stay. Uh, so I think that that's what some prior trials have done. And, and I think for a patient who's really high risk, or if you know that patient's going to benefit, there might be an argument for that. But for patients who are low risk, I think that's unlikely to be a protocol that would be widely applied. So if you think all patients benefit from these support devices, uh, but you're trying not to do something deleterious, like prolong length of stay for a low-risk patient, uh, the, the happy median that we thought made sense uh, for developing a protocol to apply to all patients was to extubate patients to these devices and then continue them till 5 a.m. the next morning. So for that, uh, because most of our intubations happen in the morning, that means most patients got uh, nearly 24 hours. The median was uh, was 16 hours, uh, and um, which is pretty similar to the amount of support applied in previous trials, but some previous trials have applied much more support, so 48 hours or more. So I think one limitation is, is it just that we didn't supply support for long enough or that we didn't supply enough? So high-flow cannula, which ended up being the main factor that differentiated the intervention from the control patients, we used a, or we suggested a flow rate of 40 liters per minute uh, and 40% FiO2, would higher flow rates or a longer duration have uh, ha have provided more benefit? I think we don't know the answer to that from our trial, uh, but we, we did look at uh, patients within that group who uh, had longer durations. For instance, if you were extubated earlier in the day, then you got more high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation before the device was removed at 5 a.m. the following day. If you were extubated later in the day, you got less. So that, that was uh, a uh, somewhat natural experiment within uh, the protocol to say to, to see did duration of support uh, help to mediate this effect. And it did not appear that patients who got longer periods of support did any better than those who got shorter periods of support. 
Got you. And then your study was a single center um, uh, in an ICU, and I think in your um, method uh, in, in the paper you stated that the front half of your ICU was randomized to one intervention and the back half to another. So do you think that plays into one of the limitations, the fact that it was a single center um, versus multi-center? Yes, absolutely. So uh, so I think that should always be viewed as a limitation when you only have one center. Uh, and I think you also have to look at the way randomization was uh, pursued. So this is a, a so-called randomized cluster crossover design, um, and there were only two clusters. So I think it's important to say, was that enough to uh, balance the different uh, the uh, baseline characteristics between patients? And it appeared to be so, but I think that's another potential limitation as being a single center with only two clusters. And then were the therapists, the respiratory therapists, and the physicians um, uh, working at both uh, of those two sites in the ICU, or were they allowed to go across uh, those two sites uh, during uh, the course of a day or the course of a month? Yeah, so it's a great question. The, the intervention was really designed at the respiratory therapist level, as that's who we thought would be applying this intervention in usual care afterwards. So uh, the, in our uh, ICU, the front hall is cared for by one respiratory therapist and the back hall by another. Uh, and that's convenient because those respiratory therapists can apply the same protocol to their patients for the, for the entire day, uh, and the other respiratory therapist applies the opposite protocol. Uh, but as you mentioned, that uh, those respiratory therapists might change locations from day to day. So when they show up to work, they, uh, they know that today I'm in the front hallway and applying this protocol, and, the, and today I'm in the back uh, uh, protocol, and I'm going to use usual care, which means I'm going to let the, the physicians uh, choose what to do. I think whenever there's um, uh, uh, crossover like that between the providers, you have to worry about contamination. So did the protocol affect the way... Uh, devices were used in the usual care arm, and I think that there's uh, the, the important metric to look at is is how different the intervention and control arms were, and they're very different. So the intervention arm uh, uh, had more than 90% of patients receive a therapy that was usually high flow nasal cannula, and the non-invasive uh, and the uh, usual care group had very few patients, uh, around 16%, and that was primarily non-invasive ventilation. So I think that's certainly uh, the, the fact that these were uh, these interventions were delivered by respiratory therapists who could have crossed back and forth over the course of this 18-month study should raise concern for contamination, uh, but it does seem that there is sufficient separation between groups uh, to expect to have seen an impact if this intervention was effective. Yeah, I agree with you. There definitely was the, the difference between the two arms. Um, John, I want to take a step back and ask two more broader questions. The one is dealing with the protocolized care versus you know, individualized care uh, by physicians and therapists, you know, th this has been an ongoing debate in uh, the ICU setting, and it appears that sometimes these protocols work, and sometimes they don't. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that uh, th these two don't have to be in conflict in my mind. I think there are some uh, interventions that might be best applied to all patients. So I don't think there's a there are patients who, for whom spontaneous awakening and breathing trials are are harmful. I don't think there are patients for whom uh, trying to minimize sedation is harmful. So I think there are some interventions that should be applied to all patients. I think there are many other interventions for whom the answer might be that uh, it hurts some patients and helps others. And I think historically we've, we've uh, based those decisions on physiology or expert opinion, and I think that we found a lot of times that that fails and that when those therapies are then, when those regimens are then tested, they're either ineffective or harmful. 
So I think the best way to figure that out is large trials. So the proper trial showed that that uh, uh, applying this intervention to all patients didn't help. And I think the next work should be using physiology and uh, secondary studies of randomized trials or physiology studies to try to come up with a, a theory of who benefits and then apply the therapy to those patients and, and test if that's true. So I think that uh, I think there are likely some therapies that apply to all patients and some therapies for whom there are only subgroups and uh, those subgroups may uh, so may be fall along the lines of so-called subphenotypes that are getting a lot of attention in ARDS and acute kidney injury and some other diseases. Um, and, and those those phenotypes may be may be identified based on pure physiologic criteria or clinical diagnosis and comorbidities, or they may require biomarkers. But I think that's uh, this is this personalization. I think is an important direction for medicine in the next 20 years. And I think the important thing is that doing, uh, finding those out and really validating those measures are going to require large, more trials and larger trials to really get down to the individual patient-level factors that uh, tell us uh, which patients will benefit from which therapies. And I think you can imagine a scenario uh, 20 or 30 years from now where we have figured that out, and it requires a sophisticated model that can be embedded in the electronic health record so that when you place an order to extubate, the electronic health record pops back and says, this patient's reintubation rate would be 10% lower with this therapy, or this patient would benefit from, uh, has no benefit from those therapies. So I think that that's the, the dream we're trying to get to, and I think there's a lot of work in terms of advanced statistical methods to identify this so-called heterogeneity of treatment effect and to validate those findings and then to embed those findings into our usual care to benefit patients. Definitely. You mentioned the importance of large uh, trials, and we've seen in the past year, especially with COVID, um, the, the emergence of you know multi-center adaptive platform trials. Now, you at Fandible uh, uh, at, at have a pretty robust uh, team where you're doing randomized clinical trials. One of the questions that some have raised is that, you know, are these multi-center platform adaptive trials going to take over and prevent smaller centers from continuing the randomized trials? Will there be sufficient funding? Um, I was curious to get your thoughts on uh, that issue because these adaptive platform trials have really been able to answer really important questions in a very short period of time, but there will be some limitations. Are, are there not? I think that that you know we're we're seeing really amazing change in a short period of time during COVID, and pertains to in, as it pertains to the types of therapies, the types of research methods, and the type of uh, clinical trial designs. And um, you're touching on a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and something that our group has been thinking and, and writing about a lot recently. And I think that there's really good examples of the two approaches. Uh, uh, between small explanatory trials and larger pragmatic trials and that have been um, really uh, made stark by the approaches taken by different countries or, or regions. So uh, the U.S. has typically uh, continued to do small explanatory uh, patient-level randomized controlled trials, uh, and the U.K. is the, uh, I think, is the main group you're referencing with the recovery trial who has instead done these larger uh, adaptive randomized trials the solidarity trial, solidarity trial by the WHO being another example. And I think there, there are two, two distinct ways in which those approaches are different. Uh, one is the, the large adaptive platform uh, method, and the other is the way those trials are conducted. So uh, in the U.S., we, uh, uh, 
basically have conducted uh, traditional trials where the research team is separate from the from the clinical team. So I helped to design and lead the ORCID trial, the, the uh, pedal networks trial of hydroxychloroquine. And in that trial, we had a separate research team that screened for patients every day and approached patients and could enroll somewhere between one and three patients uh, per center. Uh, and uh, over the course of three months, really through heroic efforts, was able to enroll uh, just shy of 500 patients and provide really important effort, uh, really important evidence about hydroxychloroquine. During that exact same period in the UK, uh, they, they designed the recovery trial. And I think one part of this is, is, is the trial design. The other part is what was happening in usual care during this time. So in, in the ORCA trial, we could randomize one to three patients per day. Uh, but in New York, and we had some enrolling sites in New York, they were, they were admitting hundreds of patients per day in uh, April and May. And uh, only two or three of those could be included in trials. And for the remainder of patients, the, uh, the clinicians themselves had to make decisions outside of trials. And in, this, in last spring, hundreds of thousands of patients were exposed to hydroxychloroquine uh, before, during which time the ORCA trial enrolled just 500 patients. In the UK, they took a different approach. So it wasn't just this adaptive platform. They said that we're going to take a, a learning healthcare system model and we're going to discourage the use of hydroxychloroquine or any other uh, unproven therapy uh, in clinical care, and we're going to encourage you to enroll all of your patients into the recovery trial and instead of having a separate research team do that, because there's no way they could enroll hundreds of patients a day, we're going to ask the treating clinicians to approach and enroll the patients and deliver the intervention. And they, they set a benchmark of 60% of patients in the hospital. So that their goal was to enroll you know, essentially every patient for whom they were considering hydroxychloroquine or Kaletra or whatever other therapy was included in the platform, to instead of giving those therapies open label to in, uh, include them in the recovery trial. And through that, uh, they answered, I think, really the most important questions uh, in a really incredibly efficient way. So during the period that the ORCID trial enrolled 500 patients, the recovery trial enrolled 13,000 patients in a much smaller country that had about a tenth as many cases and answered really critical questions about not just hydroxychloroquine, but uh, Kaletra and Azithro and dexamethasone uh, and then subsequently went on to answer important questions about about corticosteroid, about um, tocilizumab and convalescent plasma. And I think that, to me, those are the, are the exact right way to look at available therapies. So a therapy that your your physician could prescribe open label. And I think uh, the 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 model of using these uh, large pragmatic adaptive trials to try to improve the things we're already doing makes a lot of sense. I think that doesn't make sense for uh, for hypothesis generating studies. So I, there's always going to be a role in um, in hypothesis generating or physiologic studies. Uh, they're going to start with observational uh, data and then move to small pilot studies, uh, and then uh, uh, the, and especially for drug design and novel therapies, it would I think it'd really be inappropriate to conduct uh, the types of uh, uh, of large trials where they have very brief consents that are conducted by the treating clinicians, like the recovery trial, I think that's not the right way to do uh, small explanatory trials or first-in-man drug trials. So I think that these two things are, 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 are again, not in opposition. I think these are, are we're learning there are different ways to, uh, different tools to study different questions. And I think these large adaptive platform trials might be really efficient ways to improve the things we're already doing 
uh, but they're not the right ways to uh, to look at these new novel therapies. So how do we get there? So it's, it's rather um, stark that in the United States, as you said, we tend to do these smaller hypothesis-generating RCTs, but we've got the patients in terms of, you know, we, we see a thousands of patients with sepsis, thousands of patients with ARDS. Is it just the case that um, Americans are just more individualistic, not willing to collaborate as well as those in the UK or in Australia? And what could it take us to get there? I think that there are a number of changes that are needed, and I think that we can. I think that's the culture that Vanderbilt has been creating over the last 20 years, is this learning healthcare system where uh, I think you ha- we have to convince each other that uh, that it's better, if you don't know the right answer, it's better to learn the right answer through a randomized trial than uh, trying to uh, experiment on your patients in an individual way until you figure out which one you think is best. And that further, I don't think you can really do that for most therapies. If the treatment differences are small, they might still be really critical on a population level, but you as an individual uh, practitioner will never figure that out by treating patients. And I think a lot of people learn that in the pandemic. So a lot of people who, who uh, through you know, very understandable motivations, chose to give hydroxychloroquine, and then a few months later it was found to be either ineffective or maybe even harmful. So I, I think people, there was no, there's, it's very hard for a therapy like that uh, that's safe and tolerable. It's very hard to figure out by just by treating patients which therapy, if that therapy is effective or not. Uh, and I think, uh, so I think there's a cultural part to say that we, um, as a as a culture, need to understand that if I'm doing it this way and the guy across the street is doing it another way, one of us is wrong, and we really got to figure that out because spending decades where we do it different ways is not good for patients. And I think the other other part of that is we have to make it easy for clinicians to do that. So right now, you might say you might agree with what I just said, but there's, what are you going to do about it? There's not many opportunities at places to put that motivation into practice. So that's where I think the uh, funding organizations and healthcare systems have to really drive this change. Uh, and then finally, the regulations. So I think uh, the UK's model of the solidarity trial of having a very brief consent that was embedded into routine care, that's not a model that I'm sure that I, I, I'm, uh, I don't know if that model would have been approved in the US. So I think there, we need to, to start to think about our risk to patients in a relative way. So for a first-in-man drug that you'll never get as part of usual care, the risk of being in the research are significant. So the, our current approach of having a research team that's separate from uh, usual care, that you understand is not your doctor, uh, avoiding a so-called therapeutic misconception, and that sits down with you to have a very long conversation about risk and benefits and have a witnessed signing of that consent, all of those protections I think, are obviously critical if you're going to expose a patient to these uh, risk of research from a first-in-man drug. I would argue if you're trying to look at um, two things that are in usual care, so uh, an example from our group was balanced crystalloids and saline. So in our hospital, about 50% of the fluids we, we gave prior to uh, our recent trial of balanced crystalloids and saline, the SMART trial, uh, were saline and half were balanced crystalloids. And, and the risk of randomizing patients between those two is really not any greater than the risk of usual care. So if we if we suggested to providers which uh, therapy, which fluid the patient should get, um, uh, but gave the providers the chance to opt out if they felt like there was really an important reason for them to have one or the other, 
And that really, the risk of that research is really pretty similar to the risk of, of usual care. And I think that the patient protections and models of consent have to be updated to still respect patients, let them know that this is the kind of research we're doing, give them chances to opt out, but not to have a separate research team come spend three hours talking to them and signing an 18-page consent. I think the, that that um, uh, the current way we uh, praise risk of research uh, and uh, is really hurting patients by preventing potentially beneficial research. And I think there need to be uh, changes to the way we regulate these comparative effectiveness research, uh, especially in the ICU, to allow us to do research like that uh, more easily. And then I also think that healthcare systems need to be uh, motivated to make these changes for their patients. I think payers could help by creating incentives to improve outcomes through pragmatic trials like this and like the proper trial. Uh, and then I think grant funding could help to support these trials and also to support the infrastructure uh, that's needed to create them. I think a lot there are some bioinformatics solutions to help do these trials at multiple centers. There's uh, biostatistical advances that need to be made to, uh, to really better analyze cluster-level RCTs, which are a common way that these trials are done. So I think there is a number of things that our, our healthcare system needs to do to be able to more nimbly answer questions like the proper trial. Uh, and as you referenced, uh, one of our big limitations is single-center research, and I, I think moving to multiple centers is going to be a big part of that as well. Yeah, I think you've given a really good uh, overview of what needs to be done, and uh, hopefully um, a lot of people are listening to that. Uh, John, you've been really uh, gracious with your time, and I appreciate you sharing um, uh, your study findings. Um, as we conclude the, the podcast, maybe you could share with us uh, any concluding uh, remarks uh, for our audience, or anything that you've got planned in the future related to uh, this trial that you want uh, the audience to be aware of. Well, I'm hoping someone out there is uh, equally interested in this and will able to be able to help me or help us figure out who best benefits from these therapies. And, and I hope that work like this uh, will help people realize that that when you have prior evidence uh, that doesn't uh, that only partially applies to the solution you want to do for patients, it's important to test the actual solution in those patients. So uh, I think it would have been easy, and I think a lot of centers probably did look at the same evidence we had and just apply a protocol for their patients. And I can tell you from applying this protocol here, it took a ton of effort and a ton of time for a respiratory therapist. And we did it for 18 months and found it wasn't effective, and we stopped doing it. And I think that there, uh, you could have easily envisioned other centers who would have done this for decades without ever evaluating whether or not it was effective. So I hope that work like this shows us that it's really important to, to do comparative effectiveness research and identify which therapies benefit patients so we can double down and do those right and which ones don't so we can de-escalate those interventions and save our, uh, save our patients from uncomfortable high flow nasal cannula and BiPAP masks they don't need and save our respiratory therapists uh, from uh, a lot of work that they, uh, is not benefiting patients. So uh, I, th I hope that uh, people find the proper trial useful for in, in that way, uh, but also uh, as a, a step towards eventually identifying exactly who benefits from these therapies and apply, applying that in a very uh, systematic way. Yeah, it's so important to have that feedback loop. Um, so we've been very fortunate to have Dr. Jonathan Casey with us. He discussed his trial entitled Protocolized Post-Extubation Respiratory Support to Prevent Reintubation, a randomized clinical trial. It was in the Blue Journal. And we really applaud you and your team for outstanding work in Nashville, Tennessee. You take care. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. A big thank you to Dr. Casey, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper, 
for the American Thoracic Society.